You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. Cobham, Duchess of Gloucester, was convicted of working with astrologers and a suspected witch to curse King Henry VI of England in 1441, she was sentenced to a public act of penance, followed by imprisonment for the remainder of her life. After her arrest, she was kept in Leeds Castle in Kent until her trial. It was in Leeds that she performed her penance, including a humiliating parade through the streets. From there, the Duchess was shuffled first to Kenilworth, then, in 1446, to Peel Castle on the Isle of Man, where she lived in desolation until her death in 1454. Today, Peel Castle is said to be haunted by the specter of a great black dog, thought by some to be the spirit of Eleanor Cobham. A similar black dog is also said to haunt Eleanor's first prison, Leeds Castle. In fact, these are just two of dozens of reported canine specters in the British Isles. Some are held to be guardians of ancient sites or cities. Some are said to be hellhounds with glowing eyes. Some are harbingers of death, and still others are benign protectors of humankind. In this episode, we examine dogs as familiar spirits, and I bring you the story of perhaps the most famous dog wanted for witchcraft, a white poodle named Boy. The association of animals, especially dogs, with magic is an ancient one. As far back as ancient Greece, depictions of Hecate, the triple-faced goddess of crossroads and magic, included dogs. Sometimes the goddess herself was even depicted in the form of a dog, and stories and plays often used the sound of a dog howling to herald her arrival or intervention. In medieval and early modern Europe, witches and other practitioners of magic were commonly thought to employ familiar spirits to assist them with their magical operations. These familiars could take the form either of supernatural entities in animal form or of actual animals. Historians and scholars of folklore alike have identified similar beliefs among indigenous communities as far afield as the Americas, Australia, and Siberia. By the era of the witch craze in 16th and 17th century Europe, the familiar spirit had become a standard piece of the folklore surrounding witches, especially in England and Scotland. Some scholars have argued that these beliefs arose from centuries of theological debates on demonology, and that the idea of the witch's familiar was handed down to the common folk by priests and pastors who delivered these ideas to their congregation via sermons. A few modern scholars, however, have argued against this simplified model of transmission, instead pointing out that these ideas possibly emerged from much more complex networks of communication. Looking for the origins of the witch's familiar, historian Emma Wilby has identified aspects of the familiar spirit in the British Isles' long history of fairy lore, 
and argues that popular ideas about fairies in early modern Britain may have played a large role in the creation and definition of the witch's familiar. Like familiar spirits, some fairies associated with the domestic sphere were thought to work alongside humans as close companions and helpers. The appearances of both fairies and familiars could vary, with many appearing to be human or animal, with some slight visual difference to set them apart as supernatural. In their animal forms, witches' familiars could look like dogs, cats, rabbits, bats, rats, toads, and other common creatures. Rochelle Rojas has analyzed records of witch trials in early 17th century Navarre, which describe toads dressed in human clothing as the familiar spirits awarded to witches by the devil. Toads, long associated with toxicity and disease, made ideal partners with the witch as she was imagined in early modern Europe. Ancient Greek and Roman medical texts warn against the dangers of handling and ingesting toads, and emphasize their poisonous nature. However, just as magic can harm or heal, toads were also a main ingredient in essential medicines to cure inflammatory conditions and infections. The medieval mystic Hildegard von Bingen wrote about the medicinal value of toads, while also warning her readers that, quote, the toad has some diabolic art in it and is sometimes dangerous. Just as witches were thought to work harm secretly, using noxious brews and malign incantations to produce disease and death, the toad, too, served as a symbol of poison, illness, and mortal danger. If toad's ambivalent position in ancient medical texts made them ideal familiars, cats were all the more fitting. Cats enjoyed a mystical reputation dating back to ancient Egypt, when they were revered as sacred symbols of the goddess Bastet. In Scandinavian folklore, cats were associated with the goddess Freya. Two large cats even pulled her chariot. In the era of early modern witch trials, it should come as no surprise then that cats were associated with magic and witchcraft. Cats were often the familiar of choice when knowledge or powers of witchcraft were passed from one generation to the next, or from mentor to acolyte. One accused witch, for example, testified that when her grandmother taught her witchcraft, she was then presented with a familiar in the form of a white spotted cat. She then gave this cat to her neighbor, conferring the diabolical powers that came with it. But of all the creatures associated with the familiar spirits of witches, none quite compare to the faithful dog. Accused Scottish witch Jeanette Watson testified during her trial in 1661 that, quote, the devil appeared unto her in the likeness of a pretty boy in green clothes, and went away from her in the likeness of a black dog. Like some species of fairy, Jeanette's devil could shapeshift between human and animal form with ease though he bore a striking appearance in both forms. One case from Essex in 1645 features Helen Clark's testimony 
that her familiar, a large white dog named Elamancer, appeared in her house and asked her to renounce her Christian faith. A year later, Joan Wallace of Keeston would testify that two of her familiars, Gristle and Greedy Gut, appeared to her, quote, in the shape of dogs with great bristles of hog's hair upon their backs. The image of the dog as familiar gets a comic treatment in the 1621 play The Witch of Edmonton. The authors of the play, William Raleigh, Thomas Decker, and John Ford, describe it as a tragicomedy. And in fact, the action of the play centers on the eponymous witch, Elizabeth Sawyer, a real-life Englishwoman convicted of witchcraft and executed earlier that same year. During her trial, Sawyer confessed that she made a pact with the devil after a dog named Tom appeared to her. The dog, which was sometimes black and sometimes white, came to her several times a week after that as a familiar. All of this is recounted in a pamphlet entitled The Wonderful Discovery of Elizabeth Sawyer, a Witch, that was probably the playwright's central inspiration. The play begins by introducing Elizabeth, a poor, lonely woman whose neighbors ostracize her and treat her terribly. After some of them make it clear they already think she's a witch, a talking dog named Tom, played by a human actor, appears. As her only friend, Tom alleviates Elizabeth's loneliness and eventually tempts her to take her revenge on her neighbors. With Tom's help, she drives one of her neighbors to madness but it turns out the others are all too eager to sell their own souls, given the chance. This critique of the neighbor's hypocrisy extends to a parallel plotline that centers on one of Elizabeth's other neighbors, Frank. Frank has fallen in love with, and secretly married, a poor girl named Winifred, when his parents, ignorant of their son's marriage, insist that he marry the wealthy Susan, he gives in and agrees to a bigamous marriage. Frank then tries to run away with Winifred, and Tom the dog appears. When Susan discovers the couple, Frank stabs and kills her. He attempts to frame another man, but Susan's sister finds Frank's bloody dagger, at which Tom the dog merely shrugs. Elizabeth and Frank are executed simultaneously, but Susan's family agrees to take in the pregnant Winifred, and all ends on a bittersweet note with Susan's father remarking, So let's every man home to Edmonton with heavy hearts, yet as merry as we can, though not as we would. However, Tom the dog is still on stage, claiming he's off to London, and far from a satisfying resolution, we're left with the seedy underbelly of the village exposed. Far from Elizabeth being a lone witch, we learn that most of the folks in town are just like her, The winner of the play's events appears to be Tom the dog. Some 20 years after The Witch of Edmonton first premiered, the King of England made a terrible mistake. If King Charles I didn't already know that he was in trouble by the spring of 1642, he soon found out. In January of that year, after decades of disputes with Parliament, Charles had attempted to capture five members of the House of Commons. He failed. 
Parliamentary supporters throughout England began to arm themselves, as did supporters of the king, and by summer, war had broken out between the parliamentarian roundheads and the royalist cavaliers, launching the English Civil War. After the royalists won early victories, the parliamentarians joined forces with Scotland. The rise of Oliver Cromwell and his new model army turned the tide in Parliament's favor. By 1646, Charles had been captured. The King of England was Parliament's prisoner. One of the reasons the royalist forces were so formidable at first was the leadership of Prince Rupert of the Rhine. Duke of Cumberland and a nephew of King Charles, Rupert had a long military career before he came to England to fight for his uncle. As a young man, Rupert had fought for Dutch independence from Habsburg, Spain during the Eighty Years' War and against the forces of the Habsburg Holy Roman Empire during the Thirty Years' War. At just 23 years old, Rupert was appointed commander of the Royalist Cavalry and rose to the position of general of the entire Royalist Army. Though Rupert was born Bohemian royalty, his time in Bohemia was short. When the Protestants there deposed their Catholic King Ferdinand in 1618, they crowned Rupert's father, Frederick, as the new King of Bohemia, enraging the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor and sparking the Thirty Years' War. Frederick's forces were no match for those of the Holy Roman Empire's Habsburg dynasty, and by the next year, Frederick was forced to abdicate his title and go into exile with his family. The brevity of Frederick's reign of Bohemia earned him the title the Winter King. Rupert was less than a year old when his parents fled with him to The Hague. In his new home, Rupert received an excellent education and a strict Calvinist upbringing, though his mischievous antics earned him the title Rupert the Devil. As he grew older, his mother Elizabeth, sister to King Charles, worried for his safety especially when, at the age of 14, Rupert began his military career. Rupert moved easily between The Hague and his uncle's court in England, but he was captured in battle in October of 1638 and held prisoner on the condition that he convert to Catholicism and fight for the Holy Roman Empire. Rupert refused. Eventually, his captors allowed him to receive visitors. To keep him company in his captivity, Rupert's friend, the Earl of Arundel, gave him the gift of a large white hunting poodle named Boy. In 1641, thanks to the intervention of the Empress Anna Maria, Rupert was released after kissing the Emperor's hand and swearing never again to take up arms against the Holy Roman Empire. Returning to England, he brought Boy with him. Rupert and Boy arrived in England just in time for the outbreak of the Civil War in 1642. Rupert immediately began recruiting and training Royalist cavalry forces, and soon earned a reputation for his dramatic courage, bordering on recklessness on the battlefield. His attitude and tactics, which were typical in the rest of Europe and served well on the unforgiving battlefields of the Thirty Years' War, had no place in the more genteel traditions of English warfare. He began to get a reputation for killing 
plunder, and general savagery. Protestant propagandists took advantage of Rupert's increasingly negative reputation, and tracts began to circulate accusing Rupert of witchcraft. One Protestant account, reporting the arrests of several witches in Norfolk, hinted that this would hinder the royalist cause by removing some of the diabolical protections Rupert had enjoyed. The account reads, It is likewise certified by many of good quality and worth that at the last assizes in Norfolk, there were forty witches arraigned for their lives and twenty executed, and that they have done very much harm in that country, and have prophesied of the downfall of the king and his army, and that Prince Rupert shall be no longer shot free, with many strange and unheard-of things that shall come to pass. In answer, royalist propagandists satirized the Protestant obsession with Rupert and witchcraft by depicting his dog Boy as a witch's familiar and assigning him a number of fantastical abilities. A 1642 pamphlet entitled Observations Upon Prince Rupert's White Dog Called Boy is written in the form of a letter from a roundhead spy to the parliamentarian forces. The spy's orders were apparently to keep, as he writes, a very strict eye upon Prince Rupert's dog called Boy, whom I cannot but conclude to be a very downright devil or a spirit. Among Boy's rumored powers were the ability to sniff out hidden treasure, to catch bullets fired at Rupert in his mouth, to prophesy the future, and to speak multiple languages. He is also credited with surviving attacks by mere mortal weapons. One account insists, once I gave him a very hearty stroke with a confiding dagger, but it slided off his skin as if it had been armor of proof anointed over with quicksilver. Boy also appears to be Catholic in his sympathies. According to the pamphlet, Boy loves organs and true singing and such diabolical charms. The purpose of this pamphlet was apparently to mock the parliamentarian obsession with Rupert as a witch depicting the roundheads as credulous yokels who believe any silly thing. The narrator finally concludes with a seemingly rhetorical question, asking, Is not this a dog that is no dog but a witch, a sorceress, and an enemy to Parliament, that hath something of the devil in or about him? Unfortunately, Boy was not immortal. At the Battle of Marston Moor, Boy broke loose from his leash in the camp, ran to Prince Rupert on the battlefield, and was killed on July 2, 1644. The parliamentary faction mocked Rupert's loss in a pamphlet called A Dog's Elegy or Rupert's Tears, claiming that Boy's killer had in fact been a soldier skilled in necromancy. The frequency with which dogs appear as familiars in witch trials is most likely the product of the familiar's function as companion and helper, and the ways that dogs fit into human lives. From the earliest days of recorded history, dogs have acted as guardians, helpers, and companions to their humans. Working dogs continue to be essential to agricultural work and military efforts in countries around the world. It's precisely this bond of companionship between human and dog 
that tempts the lonely Elizabeth Sawyer into joining forces with Tom the Dog in The Witch of Edmonton. And this same bond led to both parliamentarian and royalist speculation about Boy as a possible familiar. While the royalists mocked parliamentarian fears about Prince Rupert being a witch, the whole of England would soon see the harm this obsession with witchcraft could do. In the same year Rupert and Boy were driving back parliamentarian forces, anxieties about the spread of witchcraft would give rise to Matthew Hopkins, England's self-proclaimed Witchfinder General, whose career between 1644 and 1646 is believed to have led to the deaths of more than a hundred people accused of witchcraft. By the time of Boy's death in 1644, the Royalist cause was all but lost. One year later, Parliament's new model army crushed the Royalist forces and captured the King. When he refused to negotiate, Parliament put him on trial for high treason. King Charles I was found guilty and beheaded in 1649. Oliver Cromwell, the general of the Parliamentarian forces, was named Lord Protector of England. When Cromwell died nearly a decade later in 1658, his son was unable to hold on to power, and Parliament brought Charles' son back from exile to be crowned King Charles II of England. Boy is now recognized as the first British army dog. By the time of his death, his impressive reputation had spread so far abroad that Sultan Murad IV of the Ottoman Empire reportedly asked his ambassador to do what he could to find the Sultan a dog, just like Boy. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen and never miss a new episode. This episode was produced by me with original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. If you want to learn more about dogs as witches familiars, be sure to check out the episode bibliography link in the show notes. Special thanks to Enchanted's Patreon patrons for supporting the production of this and every episode. If you want to support Enchanted, please visit patreon.com slash enchantedpodcast. While you're at it, why not rate and review Enchanted on Apple Podcasts, which helps new listeners find us. You can get in touch with me via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com, or follow on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast, and on Twitter at EnchantedPod. As always, for more information and special features for each episode, visit enchantedpodcast.net. I'm Corinne Weaven. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted.